We are trailblazers. We are scientists. We are diplomats. We are warriors. We are protectors. We are healers. We are pioneers. We are explorers. We are family. And we are the crew of the USS Arabella, boldly going where no one has gone before. Hello and welcome to The Ready Room, the Treks and Sci-Fi Microcast. I'm Kenny, and I play Nathan Quinn, the captain of the USS Arabella. And this is Jen. I play the Vulcan First Officer, Commander Savril. For today's briefing, we're going to be doing the story so far, and Jen's going to be doing a special reading, catching us up on what's happening, and we'll have our final thoughts. Accessing library computer data. Initiating the story so far. Enter when ready. All right, so for the story so far, what's going on, Jen? Well, there's a lot going on, so that's why I decided to just read the entire thing to catch <laughs> everyone up. Because I think people, a lot of people just like read it in chunks, mm-hmm. and it might be just way too much right now. Mm-hmm. Um, there's two different away teams on the surface right now. Uh, one of the away teams had to go back to the ship um, in the Courage of Tiberius, which is our run- one of our runabouts. And the reason they're taking runabouts is because there is a mineral or minerals in the uh, soil or, uh, that is interfering with the, with the ship's ability to scan. So they don't feel comfortable in beaming the, the way team to the surface. So anyway, um, Quinn had some type of uh, telepathic issue, all the voices from the planet and the people on the planet um, yes. were just inundating him and so he just ha- had no way of controlling it like he normally could and we're assuming it has something to do with the minerals that also prevent our transporters from working so mm-hmm. we're gonna mm-hmm. re- we'll reveal more with that uh as as we go so the the ship took him back um dropped him off and picked up lieutenant commander eric james who is the uh, second officer yeah. on the ship and so he's going to be leading the team that um is on the Courage of Tiberius. So that's where you guys left off yes. in the last yes. m- microcast. Yep. So from there, um, let's see what happened. Zrem and Marie are expecting a baby. <laughs> yeah, that was a shocker. Yeah. I, I read Marie that. Has like, been, <laughs> Marie is feeling, was feeling sick, and so I sent uh, Rico a PM, and I said, Okay, let's see here. <laughs> She's feeling sick. We know that she and Zrim are pretty tight. Yeah. Is she expecting? And he's like, yeah, you're pretty quick. <laughs> he goes, well, maybe maybe it's pretty obvious. I don't know. So anyway, we worked together on a on a, uh, a joint post where we decided that some the, the virus in season five that destroyed the Tiberius um, affected Zrim, although it was it didn't make him ill and the effects were not obvious it did it did change his uh dna so that he is now able to have children now with with marie anyway if that makes sense <laughs> because andorians can't they have to have according to rico they have to have more than one individual in order to oh, conceive. Really? I didn't know. Yes. I thought that was 
the other species that that lived on Andoria, the the ones that were blind that you saw on Enterprise. Mm, okay. Um. Anyway, but apparently that that's true for um the Andorians also. So. That's, cool. That's, we'll be expecting that little blue baby in the future. Or, or you never uh, know because. She's human, yeah. right? Marie is. Yes, she's human. So it's gonna be she half could be human, half a adorable. pink, yeah, a pink uh, baby with antenna. Oh, that would be so. cute. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then let's see. Um, Savril's team had landed, and our half of their uh, team took a kind of like a little squad out to scout the area, um, led by Lieutenant Commander Catan. Uh, and basically, they're just trying to pick up bits of conversation to ensure that the universal translators are able to seamlessly communicate um, dialogue, I guess, between them and, and the, the natives of this planet that yeah. they're on. Yeah. They're called the Terrasic. So anyway, um, they went off and found a small community, and that was a pretty funny scene that occurred there. Um, it reminded me a lot of the Wizard of Oz in the scene where the Cowardly Lion, the Tin Man, and the Scarecrow jumped the witch's guards <laughs> and took their their uh, outfits uh-huh. and snuck into the castle. It was similar to that, only um, uh, he was a there was a drunken Terrasic coming down the lane, and and uh, Arya has Borg capabilities because she's she's got. Nacine and nanites and I don't know. She's a clone, very uh, a hodgepodge of thing. Yes, yeah. very complicated situation there. <laughs> so <laughs> they lured him. Uh, oh, Spring is with them. Um, the character played by In Stitches, and she communicates with pheromones. So she put off this uh, very enticing aroma <laughs> of a parasitic female, and Arya came out swinging her hips and <laughs> incapacitated him and. Um, Probed him with the with the um, Borg implants through in a wrist, stuck it in his neck, and some something happened there, and they were able to download information, what you know, whatever it was they were missing for their uh, universal translator. Yeah. So and then they came back and they left him with the memory of some really nice uh, rendezvous <laughs> and. Uh, went back to the uh, sh- the runabout, which is the uh, Shadowfax, and where Savril, Kararth, and a couple of NPCs are waiting. Which, by the way, last week when you were talking about the NPCs yes. that we have, those are existing NPCs that we used from the uh, NPC section. The oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I knew that. Yeah. I just, I didn't, we're like Fossil. Or was it Fossil? Uh, Physial. Physial. Yeah, yeah and I went back and I saw that it was Shepard who created uh-huh. Fitchel. Yeah, he created that. Yeah, and nobody just, ever I, used him. Yeah, I'd never heard him before, so I thought it was cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Yeah, they're all playing cards. They're playing poker. <laughs> and yeah, that made for a very fun scene, um, especially since Brian C.D., who plays Kararth, and I do not play cards very much. <laughs> so we did a lot of research online in order to write that scene, and it was a lot of fun. That's cool. So, so our squad interrupted them with uh, the information that they brought back from this drunken Terrasic. And they all got some rest, and they got up the next day, and they went to a festival because they learned that there was—it's kind of like a an agricultural community, and there's some type of festival going on, and lots of people are congregating. Mm-hmm. And they, they heard something about a magician in the area, 
that um, has lots of power with the, the king, apparently. That's right. So now they're looking for the magician. They are. And they're in the, they went to the festival, and uh, lots of interesting things are going on there. One of the, I thought, a fun scene that we wrote with Brian and I, uh-huh. um, he his character is dressed up like a, I think we call him a Brock, which yes. is a... A kind of like a lord. Yeah, no, a very this, noble class. Yeah, it's a noble class, and we are supposed to be his servants. And he can't. He comes bounding through the the festival, and of course, what happens? But all these little kids like surround him, begging him for candy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he claims he doesn't have any, and they all run off disappointed, except for one who says that she can take us to the magician. So now, are we? Are uh, I don't know if you know the ship. Is the magician going to be one of our men? We're not sure. Um, if it's happen? going to be a scientist or somebody who gleaned information from the scientist. Ah, uh, I gotcha. So we're just we're gonna play it by ear and see how that goes. Cool. Yeah. And I guess that's that's it for it, your team, right? Yeah. First team. Well, uh, for my team, yeah, um, there's a little bit going on with uh, Just X um, and, and what he's taken over with um, uh, the Courage of Tiberius, um, but it's not moving too fast on that side. They're still, they just landed, they're going through some food rations and uh, starting to scout the perimeter. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, they're, you know, they're probably about, what, 15 hours behind you guys? Because mm-hmm. they had yes. to make the detour go back up and back down again. Yes. So. But I know that there's some interesting, some very interesting um, um, stories that are being constructed right now for that team. Mm-hmm. They're they're on joint po- posts right now. Yeah. <clears throat> so lots of action is about to occur. <laughs> very cool. Can't wait. Yes. All right, cool. So let's uh, take a listen to Jen as she goes through and reads... Uh, everything. Every, yeah. Everything uh, of, of once they reach the planet and what's happening uh, with each team. This reading is a continuous reading of the RPG from the point where Captain Quinn gets taken back to the Arabella to the last post that was written this past weekend. This post was written by Wraith1701. Far to the north, Commander Savril's team was tentatively exploring their immediate surroundings. Lieutenant Commander Catan made the short jump from the Shadowfax down to the clearing, reflexively scanning the area for any immediate threats. Ahead, Commander Savril appeared to be doing the same. Catan respected the commander's field savvy and reined in his instinct to shield her. He knew that the commander was no novice when it came to away missions and that she could be counted on to exercise caution. The lieutenant commander glanced around. The landscape, while vaguely reminiscent of other M-Class worlds, was like nothing he had ever seen before. Staring at the sea of blood-red grass surrounding them, he knew that there was no chance of him forgetting that this was truly an alien world. Detecting no immediate threat from the local flora and fauna, Katana approached the Vulcan first officer. She turned and acknowledged him with a slight raised eyebrow. "'Excuse me, Commander,' Katan said. "'I have a proposal.' Once we secure our local base of operations, I recommend that we select a small scouting party. The party should gather as much information as possible about the nearest gathering of Terrasic, their societal structure, social patterns, and customs. Once we have a firmer understanding of how we should conduct ourselves as Terrasics, we can attempt our infiltration of the nearest village. Hopefully, 
once we're able to insinuate ourselves into their society, we can pick up some clues about the whereabouts of our missing scientists and how much damage they may have caused. Catan tapped the stone-looking pendant hanging from his neck. The communicator badges that my team put together contain an integrated universal translator program, but we should feed as much data into them as possible before we actually use them with a native. The scouting party should therefore also try to surreptitiously record as wide a sample of their local language as possible. Savril's head tilted slightly as she raised an inquisitive eyebrow. Go on, Mr. Catan. Yes, ma'am, he continued. I don't think it's too wise to send a large group on our initial probe. The less people we send, the less likely we will be discovered before we are ready. I recommend the scouting team consist of myself and Ensign James. I believe the two of us have the best chance of reconnoitering the nearest settlement without being discovered. Catan paused, not sure how the commander would react to his next suggestion. There is another team member who is relatively inexperienced but has some innate talents that may help us. If I understand correctly, Ensign Farmer has a prodigious sense of smell, as well as an ability to produce pheromones that can affect the mood of other sentients. Her senses will help us detect any approaching natives, and if we should be discovered, her pheromones may help to convince the natives that we're just a part of the crowd. What do you think? Follow-up post written by myself. Savril glanced to her daughter, concern scuffled with logic despite her knowledge of the young woman's skill set. In another timeline, Aria had gained the experience necessary that would help Catan. In this timeline, that experience was limited, and her instincts as a mother drove the wedge of concern deeper. The Vulcan shifted her weight as she wrestled her apprehension to the core of her being and glanced back to the lieutenant commander. Your logic is sound. She knew he did not require a reminder to be wary, and his exemplary service on the Tiberius reinforced that fact. Savril joined Kararth, Ensign Physiol, Ensign Bowers, and Chief Rhina as they busied themselves with preparations. The day was growing older, and there was much to be done. Joint post by Star Trek Fanatic 5, a.k.a. Kenny, and Iceman. Dr. Peterson jumped out of his seat and moved forward to the captain's position. He flipped open his medical tricorder and ran it up and down the captain's form, pressing a few buttons as he went. The doctor pulled out his hypospray and injected a neural inhibitor into the captain's neck. This was followed by a customary hiss that let the doctor know that the contents of the hypospray was being delivered into the captain's neck and would be coursing through his blood to soon relieve him of his pain. Casey looked at the captain, who still had his eyes closed. You should be feeling better soon. Casey paused a moment and grabbed another hypospray and injected it into Quinn's neck once again. Still, there was no change. Nathan fought to keep from crying out in pain as the pressure in his head built, millions of voices all talking at once. Peterson's face changed from a look of concern to a look of panic. "'Take us back to the ship now!' he yelled. Chief Cordon pulled the shuttle around and began to climb out of the atmosphere. The further they ascended, the better Quinn felt. Finally, the voices were completely gone. Quinn looked around the shuttle. "'I'm sorry, I, I don't know what happened.' It's as if I wasn't able to tune out the millions of voices. It was overwhelming. Casey ran a tricorder of the captain's head. Sir, I don't read any anomalies. Everything seems to be fine. Quinn smiled at the doctor. I'm all right, but something in this planet's atmosphere is interfering with my telepathy and my ability to filter out the voices. I will not be able to lead this away mission. Quinn pressed his comm badge. Captain Quinn to Lieutenant James. A few seconds passed. James here, Captain. Is everything all right, sir? Lieutenant, please see Dr. Myella Peterson immediately and have her alter you as quickly as possible and meet us in Shuttle Bay 2. 
I'll explain myself when we get there. Quinn out. Follow-up post written by myself. Dr. Drett stood within Shuttle Bay, too, as the courage of Tiberius passed through the force field and came to a rest upon the mirror finish of the deck. The willful trill pushed past the crewmen who had been keeping her back and jogged to the ship before it came to a complete stop. The door opened on the runabout and she rushed forward, med kit in hand. She paused at the base of the short ramp as two men started down. The alien features of Dr. Peterson were scribed with concern as he turned his gaze to meet Ryla Dretz. Casey rattled off the drugs he had administered and gave her a quick synopsis of the events leading up to Nathan's episode as they edged their way down. The petite trill met them halfway and slid under the captain's free arm to aid him. With Casey's help, she tried to help the captain onto the anti-grav sled that the medtechs brought to the runabout. No, I'm better now. I'm just a little tired, he protested. Ryla flicked her eyes to one side in order to meet the sluggish captains. With respect, sir, that's what they all say right before they pass out. He managed a weary chuckle and allowed the physicians to lower him onto the stretcher. Peterson continued issuing medical advice to the nodding trill as the medtechs pushed Captain Quinn out of the bay. Yes, sir, she said. Don't worry. He won't leave my sight until I'm certain he's well. Post written by Just X. Eric James quietly laid on the biobed as the medical staff completed the last of his modifications. He rose after a medical team backed away from the bed and looked into the mirror to review the changes. His skin was now a deep green, with long black hair and haunted black eyes. Fantastic, Eric said as he slid off the bed and looked at the collection of brown leather clothes they had laid out for him. According to the information they had gathered, it was a fashionable travel outfit and should allow him to blend into the culture with ease. While many of his colleagues had decided to follow the path of one of the society's nobles, his calculations assured him that blending in with the commoners would give him a better chance of diverting attention from his presence there. He had attended all of the briefings on the planet, but becoming a part of the away team would require him to plan accordingly. Post written by myself. Ensign Tevelwash's apprehension became exasperated after witnessing the incident that necessitated the return to the Arabella. Quinn was the first captain she served under, and the fresh-faced ensign looked to him as a sort of father figure. Now that he was ill, her anxiety over the mission transitioned to concern for her captain. The Laurelian had come aboard Tiberius as a bumbling newbie, but in the final hours of the doomed vessel, she became a dependable officer. As he struggled to keep his ship and crew alive, Noreen had watched Captain Quinn closely during that trying time. Despite indomitable odds, Captain Quinn had managed to see his crew to safety and save the planet Vulcan from certain disaster. Her blue cheeks flushed as she thought about how childish she had been, worrying the way she had about the mission on Tiras. She set her jaw with renewed determination. He needed her. It was essential that she perform her duties to her fullest, and being a nervous Nelly would not help the team accomplish their goals. In her mind, she was fervent and resolute. Yet as she glanced at her hands, she noted how they still shook nervously. If only she could send a signal to the rest of her body that she was calm, cool, and collected. She smiled sheepishly at Inipe, who sat next to her aboard the Courage of Tiberius. He'd been watching her carry on a conversation with herself within the privacy of her own mind. The lieutenant started to speak, but was interrupted when a new teammate entered the runabout. If they hadn't known Lieutenant Commander James would take Captain Quinn's place, they would never have recognized him. Post written by Just X. Knowing that the other away team was already on the planet, Eric wasted no time giving orders for the runabout to return to its previous location. 
immensely processed additional information regarding the mission to get him up to speed on any changes they may have been briefed on. Eric smiled as he looked over the team that had been assembled. As the runabout re-entered the atmosphere, he had no doubts they would succeed in the tasks ahead of them. And know that the change in the mission leader is short notice, Eric said. And I believe that we can still succeed in the tasks assigned to us without further contaminating this culture. Any tools that won't pass inspection as one created in their culture will need to remain at the base camp. We need to be swift, professional, and covert for this to be successful. I have no doubts that each of you will perform your jobs with the professionalism and intelligence that is the hallmark of Starfleet. A post written by Brian C.D. Ensign Dunn stared up at Lieutenant Commander James. The captain's sudden illness had made him anxious, but James put that to rest. He knew that Catan's runabout was already on the planet, and that he and DeCollin would be in charge of the security for this team. The responsibility made him a bit nervous, but he had DeCollin to lead him, and he had the utmost faith in the man. He didn't want to let him down, and he knew he would not. A joint post written by Just X, In Stitches, and Wraith 1701. After several hours of marching across the grassy plain, Catan, Arya, and Spring entered the outskirts of the alien settlement. The sun had nearly completed its arc across the sky, and dusk was rapidly descending. As the sky darkened, the scattered, glowing squares of numerous windows could be seen in the distance. Terlara, as Ensign James would be called on the mission, walked quietly as a hidden sensor node displayed the limited information it could gather directly into their line of sight. She marveled at the buildings in the distance. They appeared to be more sculpted than traditionally fabricated. It was as if the city had been built by master artists and craftsmen. My father would love this place, she said in her attempt to speak the Tirosic tongue. She had reviewed the linguistic database via her machines and had become somewhat conversational with the language. She would need to hear far more of it to fully understand the tone and dialects. Crouching in the grass to the right of the ensign, Catan heard her statements as Kili Safar Bakar Shi Tashkar. He recognized the speech as being one of the primary languages of the Terrasic people, but couldn't understand it. He tapped the pennant hanging from his neck, activating it. Could you repeat that, Ensign? Catan asked. I said my father would love this place, she repeated. Once again, Catan heard the Terrasic, but it was echoed by a translation in the microspeaker embedded in his ear. It is impressive, he replied. The buildings look almost as though they've been grown rather than built. Spring listened quietly to this exchange. To her, it was repetition as the two worked out their communication. The universal translator that translated all communication descent seemed to work perfectly. It had been built into the decorative, prosthetic ear that graced the sides of her head. Minutes later, the trio lay concealed in the tall grass bordering a cobblestone path. They froze as a rhythmic clumping sound rapidly drew near. Catan slowly reached out a hand and parted the clump of grass immediately before him. As he looked on, he saw a reptilian, horse-sized animal steadily marching down the path. Each of the creature's six legs ended in steel-shod feet, which echoed hollowly as they struck the road's surface. Thrilled to be seeing a non-holographic creature, Spring took in the musky smell as best she could, given that her gill slits were closed and was limited to her nose. Working, alert, but calm. Hungry. It had scented them, but gave little notice as she echoed some of its fragrance back. Catan stiffened as the stout mount seemed to slow its pace. After letting loose an agitated snort, it resumed its steady march along the road, and Catan felt his heart start beating once again. As the creature traveled on, Catan studied the beast's alien rider. 
Sitting astride the mount was a decidedly militaristic-looking Terrasic male. The alien was covered from head to toe with stiff, organic-looking armor. Overlapping plates of dark gray, chitinous substance comprised the bulk of the armor, and a helm that appeared to be fashioned from the same material covered the rider's head. The only exposed areas of the skin were his emerald green face and his ears, which protruded from openings on either side of the helmet. Apparently agitated with the mount's brief pause, the rider gave the creature's haunch a firm pat. Come on, girl, hurry up, the man said in a lilting terrasic. My shift ends in a half cycle, and I don't want to be late for tonight's festival. Lady Salah promised me the first dance. Post written by myself. As the Tiras sun submerged itself in the sea of grass on the distant horizon, daylight sank as the population one star took with it the warmth of the day. Twelve hours earlier, the sun's rays had welcomed Savril by caressing her jade skin with an embrace of heat. Now the cool night air nipped at her like a cornered animal. A bitter breeze stirred, prompting the fine hairs at the nape of her neck to stand on end. Savril subdued the urge to shiver and headed back to the runabout where replicated wool blankets, robes, and shawls were stowed. The Vulcan seemed to be swallowed up by the gaping mouth of an invisible monster as she entered the emitter-cloaked vessel. Striding through the narrow corridor, she soon passed Rhina and Kararth, who had begun a game of poker with the crewmen in the ship's small galley. With their preparations complete, all that remained for her team to do was wait for Catan and his scouting party to return. Chief Rhina smiled as Savril walked through the room. "'Join us, Commander,' she said as she skillfully shuffled a deck of cards. Savril arched an eyebrow at the Chief's invitation to sit in on the game. The Vulcan had not played a single hand of poker since her days aboard the Anasazi some seven years prior. At the time, the only game she knew was Kal Ta, the Vulcan game of logic. Yet a persistent suitor by the name of David Locke managed to talk her into playing Domjot. When she easily bested him during the first match, he decided to teach her poker. David had often referred to her as a card shark, even though they'd never played for money. Little did she know at the time that the high-stakes wager he lost was his heart. After that, as an excuse to spend time with her, David decided to instruct her in the art of Dabo, Tongo, Cadiz Cot, Stratagemia, Baccarat, Spanish 21, and Dominoes. All were just as quickly mastered. She could never resist a game that exercised her logic. Deal me in, she said as she returned with a russet-colored shawl and took her seat between Ensign's Physiol and Bowers. Kararth bellowed a hearty Klingon laugh as the chief exchanged a surprised glance with him. Okay, the name of the game is Seven Card Stud, said Rhina. She dealt each crewman two cards face down and one card face up. Joint post by Just X and Wraith 1701. On the outskirts of the Tirosix settlement, Arya studied the century as he moved past their position. Odds, statistics, and other measures of their possible success rate flowed through her thoughts. Once the mount had moved a sufficient distance, she spoke. If I can get closer to one of the natives, I can attempt to discover what this festival is via telepathy. Once we are aware of the custom, we can move our people in without making social mistakes that would cause us to be noticed. Her heart beat strongly in her chest at the anticipation of deeper discovery. While she enjoyed her work in medical, it was in the times when their boots were on the soil and danger was in the air that she felt most alive. She thought about her next words carefully and what they might imply. It was the most logical course of action, but it was a course that most full Vulcans would not consider. We need to incapacitate one of these people so that I might retrieve the information that we need to know without revealing our presence. Catan was taken back by Arya's proposal. His first instinct was to dismiss the idea out of hand, 
After all, the purpose of their mission was to shield the Terra-6 from contamination by the Federation, and violating the mind of one of the natives flew in the face of that goal. Then he thought back to the famous quote by one of the Federation's most celebrated diplomats. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. It was true that Arya's proposed mind probe would likely facilitate the team's blending in with the Terra-6, and therefore aid their mission. But was the price worth it? And then there was the more practical question. Was the young woman skilled enough to cover her tracks after her probe? Catan turned to Arya. Your idea has merit, but I have some concerns. As I understand it, Vulcan telepathic probes are difficult procedures, best performed by highly trained individuals. Are you confident in your ability to successfully extract the needed information? And with such an intimate connection, is there a risk of the subject acquiring information from you? I am more than Vulcan, Commander. Arya said matter-of-factly. I don't need personal contact to probe a mind, and in the event that a mind meld is needed, it might be possible to adapt our anti-discovery techniques from Romulus to this situation. Arya pushed a few stray strands of hair behind her ear. I don't need to probe very deeply to gather information on culture-specific events, but I have considered possible problems and concluded that an unconscious target would yield the best results. Catan quietly weighed Arya's words. Time was a factor in this mission. Every moment wasted was a moment during which the missing scientist would possibly infect the Society of Terra-6. He gave a nod and said, Very well, Ensign. We will carry out your proposal. Catan took another glance at the armed and armored sentry as he and his mount rounded the bend in the road. Let's move in a bit closer to the settlement and see if we can find a likely candidate. Moments later, the trio approached a lone, isolated structure. Light spilled in from a ring of windows circling a small dome-shaped building, creating an island of light in the otherwise dark night. From within issued the sounds of drunken revelry. Loud, terroristic voices rang out in alternating bouts of singing and laughter. As they looked on, an unkempt, silver-haired man stumbled out of the building's elliptical doorway. After pausing to lift a dark brown bottle to his lips, the man made his halting, weaving way into the darkness. A smile split Catan's face. I think we have a winner, he whispered. Arya nodded softly and assessed the target. He needed to be rendered unconscious with the minimum amount of damage and swiftly. She spoke softly. Ensign Farmer, will you be able to briefly distract the subject using your pheromones? Aroused men tend to ignore all but the obvious when engaged with the subject of their interest. I can then move behind him and render him unconscious while the commander provides us with a lookout. Arya then turned to Catan. Is this plan acceptable, Commander? As the inebriated alien stumbled through the underbrush, Catan sighed. There were aspects of the plan that did not sit well with him, but he knew that it was the most pragmatic approach available. Sometimes one had to venture into morally gray territory to protect the light. Catan nodded. Proceed. Joint post written by myself and Rico. Sickbay, Zrem said as he entered the turbolift on the bridge. The door quickly closed and the lift descended. Even his brief experience in the center seat couldn't relieve the trepidation he felt now. When Dr. Drett asked him to come to sickbay, Zrem's heart had skipped several beats. He knew Marie wasn't feeling well, and he couldn't help but be concerned for her. Counselor Margon would probably tell him that his anxiety stemmed from the trauma that he and Marie experienced while aboard Tiberius. Sometimes it seemed that the virus, which had almost taken Marie from him, followed them to this new ship. It was haunting his steps even now. Zrem found his mind wandering to the quarantine. Jafras, is that you? The weak, soft voice of his Marie woke him from a brief sleep at her bedside. 
He lifted his blue head from the mattress where Marie had been confined. She looked so pale and fragile. Zrem had a very hard time meeting her questioning eyes, but he was determined to do just that in hopes of somehow giving her some of his own strength. Yes, Marie, it's me. Are you feeling any better after the injection the doctor gave you? Zrem recalled asking after the latest attempt at a treatment made its rounds in the space station's critical care center. Maybe a little. My head seems a little clearer. But look at you. My blue boy's a little green today. I thought I told you to get some real sleep and a real bed, Marie said with a slight smile. Zrem was constantly amazed at how Marie could think so much of his welfare while she herself was so ill. The doctors did find the virus in his system as well, though the disease hadn't adversely affected his body or mind as it had so many others. The turbolift doors whisked open before him and pulled Zrem back to the present. When his mind snapped back to reality, he quickly exited the lift and made his way down to the short corridor to main sickbay. Marie was seated near Dr. Drett within a cramped, muddled office. They were speaking quietly to one another as he stepped through the doorway. Trying to remain calm and keep his voice steady, Zrem asked, What is it, Marie? Doctor, is she all right? Marie quickly stood, moved to the tall Andorian, took his hands in hers, and looked up into his ice-blue eyes. We're fine, Chafras, she said with a large smile as her eyes began to well with tears. You don't seem that way. He glanced to the doctor who stood and offered her chair to the lieutenant. Doctor? he asked. Have a seat, Mr. Zram, she replied pleasantly. He moved to the stool while continuing to hold tight to Marie's small hands. What do you mean by we're fine, Marie? I'm pregnant, blue boy. You're going to be a daddy she said in a delightfully melodic tone and then embraced the dumbfounded science officer. Zrem's mouth opened, but no words came out. After another brief hug and a kiss on the cheek, Marie directed him to the couch nearby. The trio quickly moved the various pads, lab coats, and other clutter from the blue sofa so that the couple could sit down. Ryla couldn't help but smile at the turn of events. The virus had taken so much from them all, yet here was a case where it had actually given something back. She hoped the Andorian was as happy as Ensign Barton that this miracle had happened to them. Perhaps his speechless state was due to the fact that his people couldn't produce children with Terrans. How is this possible? he asked. I'll have to run more tests, but Maella and I believe it's due to the virus and its effect on your DNA, Mr. Zrem, Dret said as Marie looked up at Zrem, waiting for the impact of what he had just learned to sink in. After several moments, he seemed to have his thoughts collected. That's incredible, Doctor. But I was tested just like everyone else before I left quarantine. The virus was gone from my system, Zrem said as the young ensign shifted slightly closer to him. True, the virus was purged, but I think it may have altered your DNA. The change was so subtle, so minute, it evaded my detection. You were one of the fortunate crew members. But as I said before, we'll know more after I run more tests, the doctor said calmly to both Zrem and Marie. Then Dorian turned to Ensign Barton and smiled. How far along are you? he asked. About three months. The doc says everything looks perfect for now. You still look phaser-stunned. Are you happy about this? Marie asked her closest friend. Oh, Marie. I've never been happier, he said as he gave the woman he loved more than anything, a gentle hug, not wanting to ever let go. Ryla left her office, giving the couple a few minutes alone together. As she watched them from her duty station on the floor... The trill thought back upon the little ones that she, no, Dret's previous hosts had brought into the world. 
Her dimpled smile shrank slightly as the memories floated into her thoughts like falling leaves. She missed them. Though Ryla herself had never been a mother, she had felt the bliss that Zrem and Marie were experiencing in that moment. She knew that life would never be the same for them, but it would change for the better. Post written by Brian C.D. Kararth had been disappointed at first not to be included in the exploration team. Lieutenant Commander Catan's decision had been a sound one, tactically, and he couldn't argue its merit. He had been pacing up and down the central corridor of the runabout like a caged sailot. He did so enjoy his encounter with that magnificent cat back on Vulcan. Finally, unable to take much more of his restlessness, Chief Rhina had him sit down across from her at a table in the main hold and broke out a deck of cards, some chips, and a mischievous smile. Their game was about to start when Commander Savril joined them. Deal me in, she said stoically, her face a mask of complete calm and serenity. Kararth knew he was in trouble. The chief dealt out the first three cards. Kararth was showing a five of clubs, the chief a nine of spades, and the commander a queen of diamonds. Kararth checked his face down cards and saw a ten of clubs and five other hearts. He had a feeling two pair would not be enough to carry the hand and decided to raise on the first round of the bets. He stared at Savril, trying to read her expression, but saw only what must have been the finest poker face in the Alpha Quadrant. He knew for sure he was in trouble. Big trouble. Follow-up post written by myself. Savril examined the cards dealt to her with a casual movement, then met the shadowed expression of Lieutenant Commander Kararth. The Klingon's stern black face remained so as he worked his square jaw in quiet contemplation. A moment later, he nonchalantly tossed a few chips to the center of the table. The pieces made a soft clack-clack, clack-clack as they struck the growing pile of chips. Without so much as a twitch of his eyes, the Klingon had raised. Savril admired his attempt at impassiveness, and would have nodded her approval if she were certain that the gesture would not be interpreted as an affront to his usual mien. The Vulcan slowly moved her dark brown, deadpan eyes about the table, making eye contact with each player. It was a strategy she often employed to fluster emotional persons during games such as these. It wasn't always successful, but the odds were in her favor that at least one individual would find new reason to doubt his or her hand and fold. In a voice that lacked its usual buoyancy, Ensign Physio called. A hollow clinking flanked his statement as his chips joined Karath's on the table. Rhina knew that the Ensign had nothing, but then her own hand was absolutely pathetic. She couldn't blame the dealer's inability to shuffle because she was that individual. The pilot smirked in disappointment and folded, turning her up card face down and discarding the rest. The coated paper cards made a stiff fliff as she tossed them aside. The game progressed through the night as Rhina and Bowers made small talk over new advancements in shuttlecraft technology. Kararth and Savril joined the conversation, yet Physiol remained silent. The ensign didn't want to be distracted by idle chit-chat. He liked to win too much. In an effort to read the Vulcan's thoughts, the fresh-faced physio flicked a gaze towards Savril. He started to raise, but the Vulcan's tested tactic of quiet intimidation made him doubt his decision. Ah! He wailed as he sighed in defeat and tossed his cards onto the table. Folding his arms across his chest, he leaned back in his chair and pretended to study the ceiling above. Savril resisted the instinct to arch an eyebrow at his overtly irritated response. Some people are entirely too competitive, she thought. Savril and Catan were the only two players left in the game. The Klingon continued his conversation with Rhina and Bowers as he raised. 
a strategic move, thought Savril. It was exceedingly evident that he had played this game many times before. She found her thoughts drifting to her husband, a skilled poker player by his own right. What would he do in this situation? The commander spared one more glance to her hand, then met the Klingon's blasé expression. I will call your bet and raise you. Everything, she stated coolly. The Vulcan then pushed three columns of color-coordinated poker chips to the center of the table. As she did, a few pieces fell from the stacks, and she picked them up and dropped the stray chips onto the heap dramatically. A stagey clink, clink, clink rang hollowly in the small cabin. Post written by myself. The trill ran a hand through her short flaxen hair as she stood before the mirror in her cluttered bedroom. Her white, two-piece pajamas glowed softly in the low light of Turos, as the orb cast a blue hue through the viewport behind her. She turned to stare out at the planet they orbited, and wondered how her friend Spring was doing on the surface below. The Trill hoped that the young ensign was having the time of her life, but felt a twinge of envy. "'I know I would,' she uttered aloud as she smiled down at the blue-green world below. The young doctor turned back to her bed and pulled back the sheets. It had been a long day, and she was ready for the rest that her pillow offered. She climbed onto the soft mattress and buried herself beneath the blankets. And as she stared at the barely discernible ceiling above, her mind thought about the events of the day. She thought about Captain Quinn, Ensign Barton, Lieutenant Zrem, and their unborn child. She dwelt upon faded memories of past lives that she herself did not live, and fought the visions of Lieutenant Commander Catan's charming smile and piercing green eyes. After some time, Ryla turned over on her side and gradually slipped into a world of dreams where she could fly. Joint post by Jen, Just X, Brian CD, Iceman, and Hawkeye Meds. Night finally crept in as the cloaked runabout, the Courage of Tiberius, rested on the cliff of one of two massive red-tinted mountains that looked down upon a stone and wood Tarok jungle city that laid almost two kilometers away. As the day transitioned to night, hot, sweltering humidity still clung to the valley below. Commander James headed to the rear of the ship and looked to the away team that had been gathered. I know that you've all been getting restless, but we're finally ready to begin our mission. With sensors failing to operate properly, we have had to rely on strictly visual observations. That can only go so far, and that is what we're here to resolve. Eric took a breath and continued, We're going to do things the old-fashioned way. Optical observations combined with deductive reasoning. We will also be moving a group. It will mean we will cover less overall ground, but we can do more and keep our people protected. Dr. Peterson looked at Eric a moment and then spoke. Commander, I have a suggestion. Perhaps we should contact the Shadowfax and find out what their observations have been. Although some of their intelligence gathering may not be pertinent, some of their general observations may help us make up for lost time. Eric considered his suggestion a moment before replying. I would rather limit our communications for now, Doctor. We have missing scientists that might have communicators. Until we know the location of the scientists and the reason they have failed to report, we risk giving away our findings. We don't know if they're in hiding or captured, and right now, I believe radio silence should be maintained. As I see it, we need to start our own survey, Eric continued. We may need to separate the blate from the commoners among us to avoid suspicion, but we will depart in one hour to begin. Colin waited for his senior officer to finish before offering his suggestion. Sir, I may suggest myself and Ensign Dunn here do a small sweep around the runabout. It would be wiser for us to do a check before we all leave the ship. 
One or two of us waltzing around here isn't too bad, but if we all pile out, we're bound to cause suspicion. Once safe in our knowledge that we have not been detected, we can let Commander Savril and Catan know that we've arrived safely. Commander James nodded slowly. We've been sitting here for over an hour watching to see if we've been noticed. I believe the runabout doesn't need any additional sweeps, but we can never be too careful. I want to send to Colin and anyone else who could pass for common cast to head to scout. We need to limit our interactions until we can confirm that what we know about this planet is the correct information. Eric knew that there were scientists there, but if they'd gone rogue, what was to stop them from distributing false information to alert them to any attempts of recovery? Until our information is confirmed, treat everything you know as unverified rumor. Once we have boots on the ground, we can better plan. DeCollin, take Dunn and one other and find the best trail to the settlement. Maintain radio silence until further notice. Lieutenant DeCollin crossed his arms and nodded to Ensign Dunn to stand ready. The ensign's once pale complexion, brought on by the journey, had disappeared, and he now looked ready for action. He checked his gear for what must have been the fourth time since landing, making sure that he wasn't forgetting anything. DeCollin caught movement out of the corner of his eye. You're good to go, Ensign, he said quietly. Sir, Dunn replied with a smile. The chief of security beckoned Ensign Tevawash over, and the three of them left the runabout. DeCollin quickly looked all around them and then pointed at the two crewmen. He lifted his hand and put one finger to his lips to remind them to be silent, and then pointed two fingers to the side of a jagged rock. Dunn nodded and held Tuvawash's shoulders so she would follow him. Lieutenant DeCollin watched them go. These were young officers. He had full confidence in Dunn. He had recently read Tevawash's record, and although she seemed slightly unsure of herself, he was impressed with any officer who showed a willingness to try anything. What better way to build her confidence than to include her on a recon mission? Doreen Tevawash's skills were limited to science, so she followed the two security officers closely, just in case they ran into trouble. DeCollin joined the two crewmen by the rock and looked straight ahead. His eyes squinted, and with his hawk-like nose, DeCollin seemed to blend into a bird of prey, searching for his food. He smiled to Dunn and nodded in the direction he'd been looking. Dunn peered over the rock, and in the distance, he saw what looked like movement. Noreen stole a quick look around the side of the rock and confirmed Dunn's assessment. "'It must be another party,' she whispered. "'Now what?' DeCollin looked at Noreen and Dunn. "'Normally I'd go down and join in on the party.' Dunn leaned forward, but DeCollin stopped him. "'Not tonight, Ensign. We report back to the lieutenant commander, and we let him know our findings. I think we have our path.' Joint post by Just X, Wraith 1701, and In Stitches. The cool night air clung to the scouting team like a damp cloak as they watched the stumbling male. Frost escaped from their mouths with each exhalation, but did little to betray their position in the starlit darkness. Pheromones, oh boy. This had to be fast. Mackie had to work from memory and without tools. Even taking the time to pull her scent easel from her rucksack was time she did not have. As she hadn't gotten within whiffing distance of any terrific females, much less any in heat, Mackie was going to have to extrapolate, and, she gulped, guess. She couldn't use the musk of the male himself. Most species sought alternate scents for arousal. Something other, something perfect. She took the only other scent she could think of, the warrior they had spied earlier. She streamlined the scent, combing out the essential maleness and adding the commonalities she had noticed in other female aliens she had encountered, strengthening that pheromone until it was almost too sweet. 
She waited until the signal came from Ensign James, then puffed out her cheeks and blew hard. Catan's head whipped around. His eyes were dilated. He swallowed and seemed to take control of himself. He nodded shakily. Well done, Ensign, he whispered. Mackie gave a half-smile. She ducked her head and smoothed her blue candy-floss hair. Arya rose slowly to her full height, making her seem even more the exotic predator that she was. She nodded to her teammates and moved with exaggerated feminine grace towards the male. She watched him as she studied how best to incapacitate him with the least harm. She had every pressure point memorized, and her Vulcan physique allowed her to effectively use the nerve pinch on a wide range of targets, including Terrasic. Arya smiled as the male took more notice of the scent and less notice of her action. Without saying a word, she boldly moved close enough to whisper. The Terrasic word for hello would be the last thing he would actively remember as a sensual caress of her hand suddenly shifted to an incapacitating strike. It was time to gather the information they needed. The night passed slowly for the scouting party, but the intelligence they gathered appeared to be quite valuable. Eventually, they concluded their task and prepared to return to the Shadowfax. The intoxicated Teros lay unconscious in the grass, a huge grin plastered on his face. If all went according to plan, all that he would remember was that he had a legendary night of amorous adventure. The first rays of the sun were peeking over the horizon as Catan's team approached the landing site. The rays warmed the team's backs, and their shadows stretched before them like three arrows pointing towards the cloaked runabout. As they drew near an apparently empty spot in the grassy clearing, a rectangle doorway sprung into existence, drifting in the air before them. The weary trio slipped through, relieved to be back in the company of their comrades. As Ensign Farmer slumped into a nearby chair, Catan and Arya headed to the crew cabin. Commander Savril sat at the compartment's table along with Lieutenant Commander Kararth. Each of them held a set of cards fanned out before them like a pair of defensive shields. Their eyes were locked in an intense stare as they gazed over the multicolored poker chips piled high between them. Catan found the competitive tension in the room invigorating, but was compelled by duty to break it and give his report. Reluctantly, the lieutenant commander gently cleared his throat. <clears throat> as one, Savril and Karath turned their heads to regard the red-skinned tactical officer. We were able to gather quite a bit of information, Catan said. Savril gestured to Catan to take a seat. Across from her, Karath quietly fumed. Great timing, Catan, he swore silently. I could have won that hand. Savril arched an eyebrow at the engineer's comment, and Catan struggled to suppress a smile. First of all, our database on terroristic language appears to be complete, Catan said. We found no inconsistencies between what's programmed in our translators and what we've encountered in the field. Our assumptions regarding the society's social stratification appears to be on mark as well, he continued. The Brock and the Blate rarely mix except on a formal level. There are exceptions, however. A smile lit Catan's face. Last night was the first of a series of five nightly festivals. These celebrations seem to be marked by a prodigious amount of drinking and revelry, and are akin to the harvest festivals held on many other agrarian worlds. They are aimed at honoring the work done by the society's farmers and manual laborers. For five nights, the nobles pay respect to the contributions the working class make to their society. During the festival, most societal restrictions are temporarily lifted, and the Blade and the Brock are encouraged to interact socially. I believe this offers us the perfect opportunity to infiltrate the local settlement. The relaxed atmosphere of the festival should help us mask all but the most glaring social faux pas. 
Excellent work, Mr. Catan, Savril said. Much of the credit goes to Ensigns James and Farmer, Catan replied with a smile. They both performed admirably. The lieutenant commander steepled his fingers on the table before him, his smile growing into an unabashed grin. There's more, commander. It seems as though many Terrasics believe that their world is under attack from the spirit realm. They believe that witches and wizards walk hidden among them, and many of the more wealthy nobles employ their own private magicians to counter this threat. The head of the local settlement is rumored to have his own pet magician. A possible showing of this magician is one of the main attractions of this year's festival. A post written by Iceman. Dr. Peterson took his spare time to take some samples of the surrounding vegetation. He wasn't sure they would be useful and may have already been collected by the missing scientists, but it gave him something to do. Casey took his time gathering the grass, shrubs, weeds, and some fruit from the trees. After gathering 20 different samples, he headed back to the runabout to start cataloging his samples. Dr. Peterson took several hours to do a chemical analysis of his samples and meticulously logged his findings. He wanted to be sure that none of the local fruit and vegetation would be poisonous or harmful to the crew, when he was sure that at least these samples of vegetation and fruit he had gathered was safe he preserved his samples to be further studied by the hydroponics lab and reported his findings to Lieutenant Commander Eric. Post written by Just X As the light of the sun fell on the city below them, Eric James sat upon one of the many stones in the area to enjoy the sunrise. His mental contact with technology detected something intermittently, but he could not begin to pinpoint the location. With a single thought, he transferred the information that they gathered to the Aurora. Rory was still working to give them what she could from her position in low orbit, but there was little new information to consider. Shortly before he took his position on the rock, he received a burst data package. It was transmitted from Arya and relayed through the Aurora in a short burst of narrow band communication. As the information decompressed, Eric stood. It was time to work. Taking cues from the movements and manners of the natives, Eric boldly strode to the runabout. His words were sharp, direct, and clipped. We leave in 30 minutes. Grab your gear. Leave any high-level technology. A post written by myself. A magician, said Savril curiously as she laid her ace-high straight onto the table and stood. I wonder if his first trick was to vanish from the Federation. Questions flitted through her head like butterflies as she turned to her senior officers. Rest now. We have a long journey ahead of us. Led by Lieutenant Commander Catan, they followed a dirt path worn into the ground by the feet of a thousand eager pilgrims. They passed many as they traveled to the settlement that Catan had spoken of. Savril caught fragments of conversation as the Tirasic hikers passed by. Many spoke of a conjurer who could summon Mirror Spawn to defend the principle of Urubak. His magic is old, they said in whispers, blended with wonderment and fear. He spits magic through his teeth, said a mother to her small children as they brushed past the incognito band of Starfleet personnel. Whoever he was, he held the reverence of many people in the palm of his hand. After some time, they entered a maze of stalls and awnings. They navigated narrow paths packed with bins and baskets filled with brightly colored fruits and vegetables. The smell of cooking food and animal excrement assaulted their sense of smell as the pungent odors drifted on a light breeze. Music and voices crowded the air, vendors singing the praises of their wares mixed with dialogue from numerous individuals. Catan searched the crowd warily as the others took in the sights, sounds, and smells of the festival, seeking anything out of the ordinary. 
Without warning, a cavalcade of playful Terrasic rushed Kararth. His eyes widened as they enveloped him, chanting the word for candy like hatchlings begging their mother for regurgitated worms. Savril heard the disruption and turned to see the chief engineer surrounded by ten children. Apparently, his upper-class disguise was quite convincing to the youth of Urabak. A follow-up post written by Brian C.D. As the children swarmed round the chief engineer, he immediately regretted his choice of societal class disguise. Red, blue, green, a venerable riot of colored faces looked up at him expectantly, their small hands, palms up, waiting for a treat. His experience with children did not extend past a few interactions with Savril's offspring, and even those had been awkward. His colleagues seemed to be enjoying the moment immensely. Kararth was not one of them. Children, he said, I, uh, I have no candy. The looks of disappointment were profound, he thought quickly, but perhaps you could assist me in my staff, he said, gesturing to the rest of the landing party. We have traveled far to see the magician whose powers are known throughout our land. Could you help us find him? He glanced over to the commander who nodded in silent agreement. A follow-up post written by myself. Disappointed by the tight-fisted Brock and his company of equally stingy staff members, the children dispersed as quickly as they had descended upon them. All but one dissolved into the throng of Tirosik. A small, azure-skinned youngster with dark blue hair remained behind to show them the way. Follow me, she squealed suddenly as her bare feet carried her swiftly away. Savril pivoted on her heels and followed as the girl scurried past her like a desert rodent fleeing a predator. The Vulcan's copper eyes were set on the child as she weaved through the crowd. Pushing her way through the tangle of festival goers, Savril made a mad effort to keep her eyes fixed on their expeditious guide. The jade woman craned her neck in an attempt to see over the mass of people and caught a fleeting glimpse of the girl. This way, shouted the child. Savril cut her way through the crowd like an angry lerpa, only to have her path suddenly blocked by a cart pulled by a pair of purple beasts. Fresh hoska fruit, straight from the Kiratop Mountains. The crowd pushed in around her, offering fists of currency to the vendor standing beside the cart. Savril pushed her way around him, but was cut off by another merchant who pushed a spiny, red globe in her face. Straight from the Kiratop Mountains. No thank you, she said, her voice dripping with annoyance. I guarantee that any barren woman will conceive after eating the hoska fruit. How many shall I set aside for you, good lady? Savril narrowed her eyes at the purveyor of fertility fruit and, as politely as she could, shoved her way past him to search for the child who promised to take them to the magician. A post written by Hawkeye Meds. DeColin gave his report to the lieutenant commander and headed off with Dunn to prepare the bags. Looking over to Dunn, who was again rechecking his equipment, DeColin leaned to him. Are you a Virgo by any chance? Dunn looked slightly puzzled. Well, you've checked that bag six times now, Ensign. Only Virgos would be like that. Checking and checking again. Dunn went to reopen his bag again, but stopped when he saw DeColin's eye quickly look up at him. Joe folded over his bag and pressed it to Dunn. Take these outside with you. Oh, and Dunn. Ensign Dunn stopped and looked back to see the lieutenant holding a small bag. I'll bring your food sachets that you forgot to pack. Dunn turned his head and left to meet the awaiting party, while DeColin followed behind him, smiling. Command codes verified. Activating final thoughts. Take two. 
What did I say? All right, for today's for today's oh. final thoughts, we have a few things. Why don't you start, Jen? I am still looking for actors and actresses for our audio drama that we're doing of season five. Um, we have quite a few people playing multiple parts, and um, I think they're cool. I don't want to repeat too many actors' yeah, yeah. voices. So, if there's anyone out there who has a microphone and um, a, a relatively good microphone, not not like a Skype mic that picks up a lot of background noise or anything, but a microphone that that can clearly record your voice, and you have some ability to read dramatically um, without uh, stumbling too much. You can stumble. I will edit it. Don't worry about that. It just send me something uh, for a sample that I could listen to, and that way I know um, what character you would best play, you know, because I got to hear what you could do first before I decide what mm-hmm. lines to give you because everyone's mm-hmm. going to be different, you know. So, but we have several um, generic ensigns, um, some med techs. Uh, we have the evil Dr. Peters, uh, the evil Dr. Lucas, who created the virus. We need someone to play that part. And Dr. Peterson as well. Um, my husband's going to play a part, but I haven't decided which one yet, and he's not real, real happy about doing it. <laughs> so if anybody out there is here listening to this, yeah. please, please send me your, your samples or an email or a PM letting me know you're interested, and we'll, yeah. we'll go from there. Definitely. So I think that's enough <laughs> begging for now. Well, I don't know. Now I need to beg for some more. I want some more feedback from you guys. Uh, email, comments. Uh, voicemails, um, if you guys want to do a reading of a, of a favorite post, or if you just want to talk about something that someone did uh, that you really liked, go ahead and send that to us. Um, you can send it to the Ready Room Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also send you can send anything to the Ready Room Podcast. So if you're interested in joining the being an actor for Jen's RPG, you can send that to me also uh, to the Ready Room Podcast at gmail.com, and we'll make sure it gets to Jen. Um, or you can just go to our uh, profiles, and both of us have our personal emails there where you can send stuff to us also. Uh, and we're also asking for yes. more music. Um, Moyer's doing a great job, but when we, we ask for more original stuff, we try not to use copyrighted material. So if you're creative and want to create something that's sci-fi-ish or Star Trek-ish, uh, we'll be more than willing to play it on the air and give you credit, and you can get some exposure that way. But uh, other than that, I think I don't have anything else. All right. I think that's it. Short and sweet. This is Jen. And this is Kenny. Hailing frequencies closed. The Ready Room theme and other RPG music was composed by Rick Moyer. Read more about the adventures of the USS Arabella at treksandsci-fi.com.